We are up to chapter 4, Mishnah number 19, a very short Mishnah. Rabbi Yanai Ome, Rabbi Yanai says, Ein biadenu. We don't have in our hands, Lo mishalvas harishayim, not the peace, the serenity, the tranquility of the wicked, ve'af lo hatzadikim, and also not of the suffering of the tzadikim. Very short Mishnah. It's not so clear what he means. We'll get into it. But who was Rabbi Yanai? So Rabbi Yanai is a little bit different than the rest of the sages that we've mentioned until now. In that, he is technically considered an Amora, not a Tana. What is an Amora? What's a Tana? An Amora is someone that's more associated with the Talmud. A Tana is someone who's more associated with the Mishnah. About the year 200... It's the cutoff line, about roughly. And that's when Rabbi Judah the Prince writes, codifies the Mishnah. And once the Mishnah is codified, then the work on writing the Talmud begins in earnest. So we think of Rabbi Judah the Prince as the last of the Tanoim, the last of the authors of the Mishnah. And once we have his students in that generation... That begins the era of the Amoraim, the authors of the Talmud. Rabbi Yanai is a student of Rabbi Judah the Prince, and therefore he is exactly on the cutoff line between the Mishnah and the Talmud. And it is interesting that even though the book, Chapters of the Fathers, is a book of Mishnah, he managed to sneak in, and his teaching is featured in this Mishnah. The first of the Amoraim, again, authors of the Talmud, the big three are Rav, Shmuel, and Rabbi Yochanan. You won't find those names anywhere in the Mishnah, because, again, they come from the next era, after the Mishnah's been sealed. But two of those sages, Rav and Rabbi Yochanan, are both students of Rabbi Yane. So he's exactly at this cutoff point, at this crossroads, at this change in era from the Mishnah to the Talmudic era. Now, he was very wealthy. The Talmud tells us that he had 400 vineyards. And the scholars believe that his academy was run in somewhat of an unusual way. He had, of course, an empire of uh, fields and vineyards. And it seems likely from the scholars that when he would have students come to his academy, they weren't just students to study Torah, they would actually work in the field, and they would get a stipend. So he ran this kind of hybrid model where people would come study Torah, but they would also work a little in the fields and get paid for it, and that was the arrangement that he had. Now the Talmud tells us that he made an unusual ruling, and he permitted work on the Shemitah, to satisfy the confiscatory taxes of the Romans. The Romans would make a tax, and the tax would apply on communities. They would say, the community, we, we expect this amount of bushels of wheat, so to speak, every year from your community. What do you do in Shemitah? If on Shemitah you don't work, you don't work the field, you're not going to produce enough of a produce, of a bounty. And consequently... You're not going to be able to pay the taxes, and that's going to portend very poorly for you. So what are you supposed to do? 
are you allowed to violate the Shemitah in order to create the produce to pay the taxes? So Rabbi Yana, he made the seminal ruling that because Shemitah, once the temple is destroyed, Shemitah is only of rabbinic severity. It's not anymore the biblical severity. That's only true when all the agricultural laws are in place, the Sanhedrin is in place, the temple is standing. Because it's only of rabbinic severity, he made the ruling that in order to fulfill the requirements for the taxes, it would be okay to work the fields even on Shemitah. And that's actually a very relevant ruling because today we still don't have a temple and therefore the Shemitah laws are still of rabbinic severity alone. And how do we translate the permission to work to satisfy the taxes? How do we translate to modern questions and and modern realities is a subject of much debate. Now, one thing that we see about Rabbi Yanai in the Talmud is that he was extraordinarily risk-averse. For example, the Talmud tells us the book of Tainus, page 20b, Rabbi Yanai says, a person should never stand in a dangerous place and say, they'll do a miracle for me. Don't rely that you'll get a miracle. Because you know what? Maybe no miracle will happen for you. And even if a miracle does happen for you, that is going to deduct from your merits. And he quotes a verse in Genesis where Jacob is about to reunite with his brother and he tells God, I have become small because of all your kindness and all your goodness. When God does something good for you, there's a catch. And that is that it's going to deduct from your spiritual coffers, from your spiritual bank account, so to speak. And therefore, even if you do have the miracle, you're going to lose out long term. In addition, the Talmud tells that whenever he would go on a trip, of course, a trip entails danger. He would pray and he would actually update his will. He was always someone that felt death is on the doorstep. And this, again, appears many times in his storyline of the Talmud. For example, the Talmud book of Shabbos, page 32a, tells us that whenever he would take a ferry or take a bridge, he would always spend time inspecting the ferry, inspecting the bridge before he got onto it. Because maybe, you know what, if it's faulty, I'm going to die, it's going to drown, it's going to capsize. It's dangerous. It's like, you know, you think of someone going on a plane and interrogating the pilots. Uh, do you know this? Do you know that? Looking at the plane, checking the fuselage, you know, making sure everything's safe and healthy because he is very nervous. So what's his teaching? He's telling us that there is not in our hands. We don't know or we can't understand. Not the peace, the serenity and the tranquility of the wicked and also not the suffering of the righteous. The commentaries, there's two different ways that the commentaries understand this. The first idea, and this is found in in a selection of commentaries, is that today, once we're in the exile, we don't exactly understand 
how God treats us. And even though normally the Almighty does give reward, tranquility, peace to the wicked in order that they exhaust their merits in this world. And on the flip side, ordinarily, the Almighty does give suffering, pain, challenges, difficulties to the righteous in order to exhaust their punishments in this world. But we don't have that anymore. Meaning, we can never classify ourselves as being righteous or being wicked because we're somewhere in the middle. Now, at this juncture in history, says Rabbi Yanai, we can never say that we're one and not the other. We're righteous, not wicked, wicked, not righteous, and therefore we can understand how God treats us. That's not true anymore. Now, what he's addressing here is the idea found several places in the Talmud. The age-old question, why do bad things happen to good people? If someone's righteous... If someone's good, you would imagine that good things will happen to them. After all, isn't it the Almighty who's in charge of dispensing good and evil? Yes. So how come bad things happen to good people? Conversely, if there are bad people, you would imagine the Almighty will punish them. So how do you explain good things happening to bad people? It's a very old question. In fact, there's an entire book in Scripture the book of Job, trying to disentangle this question. Now, the Talmud's answer to this question is found in several places. One place, the book of Titus, page 11a, it quotes a verse in Deuteronomy, El ein Avel, God is a God that's trustworthy, that does not have any iniquity. God's fair. How does the Talmud explain this? Just as Wicked people are punished for their sins in the afterlife, even if it's a minor sin. So too, righteous people are punished in this world for even a minor sin. Everyone's punished. We don't say, oh, you know, there's a statute of limitations. Oh, it's such a small sin. No, every sin is punished. For the righteous, they're punished here. For the wicked, they're punished in the afterlife. God is fear. God is trustworthy. Number one, ve'ein avel, and there is no iniquity. On the flip side, when someone does a mitzvah, even if it's a small mitzvah, they get reward. The tzaddikim, the righteous, they get their reward in the afterlife. The wicked, they also get the reward. We don't say, hey, someone's wicked, and therefore they're not going to receive reward. Oh no, they will receive the reward, but they'll receive the reward here. That's the Talmud's formulation. All deeds, both good deeds, mitzvahs, bad deeds, sins, both deeds done by the righteous and deeds done by the wicked, they're all accounted for. All good deeds result in reward. All bad deeds result in punishment. The only difference is the venue. There's a physical world and there's a spiritual world. And depending upon which world a person prioritizes, that's the world in which they're going to get their reward. So if someone is a tzaddik, by definition, they prioritize the spiritual world. Therefore, they are in effect telling God, I want you to reserve my reward 
in the spiritual world. Don't reward me in the world that I don't care about. Wait till I get to the spiritual world and reward me there. And in the physical world, the world that I deprioritize, that's where I want my punishment. And therefore, everyone gets reward, everyone gets punishment. And depending upon which world a person prioritizes, that determines which world they receive their reward in. So a tzaddik who prioritizes the spiritual world gets his reward in the afterlife and gets his punishment here. A rasha, a wicked person, has the opposite preference. He prioritizes the physical world. And he deprioritizes the spiritual world. Therefore, in effect, he's telling God, reward me here, punish me there. And the Almighty acquiesces to people's desires. And therefore, he's completely fair. Everyone gets a reward, everyone gets punishment, regardless of the size of the respective mitzvah or sin. If a tzaddik does a mitzvah or does a sin, they get rewarded and they get punished. The only difference is that everyone gets to choose which world they prioritize and thus which world they get their reward. That's the Talmud's answer to what's called, in philosophical circles, theodicy, why bad things happen to good people. And in fact, there's a story in the Talmud about the students of Rabbi Eliezer going to visit him as he is dying. And he is in pain. And he's saying, oh, the Almighty is really angry at the world because he's punishing me so ba- so badly. So when the students see their teacher writhing in pain, they all start crying. What a terrible sight. Rabbi Akiva witnesses the same thing. And he starts laughing. He finds it hilarious that the rabbi is suffering. And the students, his colleagues, say to him, Rabbi Akiva, why are you laughing? And he responds to them, well, why are you crying? So I say to him, is it possible when you have a veritable Torah scroll in pain, you're not going to cry? So he responds, well, that's exactly why I'm laughing. My whole life, I'm witnessing our teacher, Rabbi Eliezer. And he's very wealthy. His wine doesn't spoil, doesn't turn to vinegar. His oil doesn't spoil. His flax doesn't get degraded. Things are going for him swimmingly. And now I'm concerned, maybe he has exhausted his reward in this world. Maybe the Almighty reward him for his mitzvahs here. And what's going to be for him in the afterlife? That was my concern. But now that I see that he's suffering here, I know that he is indeed righteous, and the Almighty is suffering him just to exhaust his punishment here, and now I know that his reward is complete and undiminished in the afterlife. And that's why I'm so happy. I'm happy that he's suffering. I'm delighted to see him in pain, because I know that this is the Almighty getting rid of all his sins, expunging all his sins here, and therefore in the afterlife he won't have to account for his sins. Meanwhile, Rabbi Lezer hears this and he says, wait a minute, are you suggesting that I have done sins? Isn't that the implication? So Rabbi Kiva responds, he says, well, I'm just saying what you taught me. You taught me, and he quotes a verse in Ecclesiastes, there's no tzaddik in the land that does good and doesn't sin. You taught me that everyone sins. And therefore, by your own admission, you have some sins. Of course, they're minor, they're small. 
but you have some sins and you have to account for them. And you either account for them here or in the afterlife. And now that you're suffering, I know that you're accounting for them here. And that makes me very happy and very relieved. So that's the idea. The idea that the Talmud shares with why bad things happen to good people and that Sadiqim are punished here. And the Rishayim, the wicked, are rewarded here. Says Rabbi Yanai, that formulation is not so clear. We don't exactly know because no one is really righteous enough to get their punishment here necessarily and no one's wicked enough to get the reward here. And therefore the subject is beyond us. The second interpretation of this Mishnah is slightly different, but it is not based upon the fact that people are not righteous or wicked in this current, in this current world, but rather that we don't exactly know why bad things happen to good people and why good things happen to bad people. And like we said, the Talmud does give an answer. And there is an entire book of Job to try to understand it. But even with all the explanation and all the interpretation and all the stories and all the examples that we are given to try to understand this subject, it's still beyond us. We don't truly understand it. Now the Ramban, Nachmanides, he has a very famous introduction to the book of Job on this subject. And he also has an essay, it's more like a treatise, on reward and punishment in general. And he says this same idea. Yes, we could discuss it. And yes, we can understand it. And yes, we can read the Talmud. The Talmud explains, well, you have to be punished someplace, so you'll be punished here, not there. Despite all the explanation that we have, to truly understand it, that is beyond us. And the canonical example of bad things happening to good people in the Talmud is the episode of Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva was the greatest sage of his era, yet for the crime of teaching Torah publicly, he was flayed by the Romans. And this story, or this contrast, the greatest sage in the land, Rabbi Akiva, the greatest hero, one of the greatest heroes of Jewish history, suffering such a horrific fate that embodies the problem of theodicy, of bad things happening to good people, more than any story. Now, it is interesting that this story is featured in three places in the Talmud. In the book of Menachos, on page 29b, in the book of Sanhedrin, page 38b, and in the book of Brachos, page 61b. And in all three instances, we discover something fascinating. We discover that the people or the things that you would imagine would be best suited to understand why bad things have the good people profess their inability to understand it. So the Talmud, the book of Menachos, page 29b, tells us that when Moses ascended to heaven to receive the Torah, he saw the Almighty making crownlets above letters. And he says to him, why are you making crownlets above the letters? So he responds, well, Rabbi Tiva in the future is going to study laws, not only based upon the letters, but based upon the crownlets, the jots and tittles above the letters. And therefore, I'm doing it for him. 
So Moses was so impressed with him. He says, okay, show me him. Let me witness this great Rabbi Akiva in action. So the Almighty showed him Rabbi Akiva, teaching Torah. And then Moses says, okay, show me his destiny. Show me his reward. And the Almighty shows him being tormented and being punished, being cruelly and macabrely killed by the Romans. So Moshe comes back to God and tells him, Zu Torah v'zu schara? This is Torah? This is its reward? Moshe is being bothered by our question. How do you have someone with such great Torah scholarship, such great righteousness, on one hand, yet to suffer such a horrific fate on the other hand? Moshe himself is seemingly incapable of truly understanding this, this matter. In the Talmud book of Sanhedrin, page 38b, it tells how Adam, before his sin, was given a sneak peek into all future history. And he saw every generation and the people that really mattered in future generations. And it notes that there was only one comment that he had. When he arrived at the generation of Rabbi Akiva, he was happy, he was glad with his Torah, but he was sad with his death. Again, he too was bothered by the contradiction of Rabbi Akiva's greatness in Torah and his brutal and grisly death. And finally, when Rabbi Akiva was actually killed, as told in Brachos, page 61b, the angels themselves said to God, Zu Torah, Zu Schara, this is Torah, this is its reward. And therefore I say, if Moses and the angels and Adam before his sin, they did not fully understand the subject of why bad things happen to good people, we could safely say that we too don't understand truly the pleasantness, the serenity, tranquility of the wicked and not the suffering of the righteousness. Yes, the Talmud does address the question. And yes, we do have answers. But Rabbi Yanai in this Mishnah was very precise. He says we don't have in our hands, in our mind maybe, we do understand why bad things happen to good people. But to have something in, in your hands, to really understand it, to be able to feel it, that's something that we don't understand on a sensory level, we'll never understand it on, 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 a, on a visceral level. It's beyond us. Now, I want to speculate that the stories the Talmud gives us about Rabbi Yanai are not by chance. He was very risk-averse. Whenever he traveled out, he made sure to update his will. Whenever he would cross over on a bridge or a ferry, he would inspect it. He was always very clear to say, don't do something which could be dangerous. He is the one who teaches us that what happens to us may be somewhat unpredictable. We cannot rely on the righteousness that we have to be able to avoid danger, and therefore we had better be careful to be as prudent as possible, because who knows, we can never say that we're righteous enough or we're wicked enough to really be able to telegraph how God is going to treat us. Now I want to apologize if you hear some banging in the background, I'm in my parents' basement, still in New York, and they, after 32 years of living in their home, they have decided to update one of their bathrooms, and to be honest, it really needed an update. 
So if you do hear the banging, <laughs> that's what you're hearing in the background, and I do apologize for that. Uh, I said to them, well, I'm, I'm, I'm planning on recording something downstairs. You hear that? You can hear it. You can make that out, right? <laughs> I'm recording downstairs. I said, don't worry about it. You'll be in the basement. And it's, it's a few floors upstairs. It's not, you're not going to hear anything. So I guess, uh, I guess we did hear something. So please forgive that. But as usual, my email address is rabbiwalbachim.com. Look forward to hearing from you. Any questions, any comments, any feedback is always cherished.